0: This morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter one again, I guess, since the last time I was here we were in Ephesians chapter one, and um, so we're going to be reading chapter one verses three through fourteen, and then uh, then I'll pray. And this is the word of the living God. is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you as always in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that apart from him, as our passage this morning so very clearly tells us, apart from him, we... Have no hope. And apart from Him, Lord, we have no right to come before You as a holy God because of our sin. But Lord, we come boldly for one reason and one reason alone, and that is because Jesus has died in our place. And He is our mediator. And so we come in His name. We come boldly, and we come now with our Bibles open waiting to hear from you and we ask this morning that you would help me to preach the word clearly that your spirit lord would convict and reprove and comfort and encourage your people lord that you would call sinners to repentance and that you would impress upon your people the great glory of your grace that has been given to us in christ And we pray all this now in his name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we are continuing as often as I come. I guess I just pick up where we left off last time in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. And um, this morning we'll be zeroing in on verses 7 and 8. And we'll be considering this great blessing of redemption. And just by way of reminder, um, it's helpful to know that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14 through 14 is one long sentence in the original language, and it's one thought. And Paul, in, in these verses, he is laying out the great riches of God's blessings that he has given to us in the person of his Son. And so we see in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 3, the very first verse is really the introduction and tells us what this section is all about. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This can also be translated as praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here is praising God. He's worshiping God. And why is he worshiping God? Why is he praising God? Well, he tells us in the next part of the verse, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul is praising God. He's worshiping God because God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so this is why Paul is worshiping God. And so the whole point of this passage is worship and i 've mentioned this i 've already went through this every time uh, the last four times i 've preached here now uh, on these on these verses is that the whole point of this Paul is not laying out these doctrines to merely make us smarter about theology he 's laying out these doctrines that our hearts might be filled with worship and wonder and awe at who God is and what he has done and what he has bestowed upon us in the person of his son now in verses 4 through 14 in verse 3 paul says praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ why are we praising him worshiping him because he has given us every spiritual blessing in christ then in verses 4 through 14 Paul then begins to list out the blessings that the Father has given us in the person of his Son. He begins to enumerate the blessings that the Father has given us in Christ. And so in verse 4, and we've already considered these, he, he mentions the blessing of election unto holiness in verse 5. He mentions the blessing of predestination unto adoption. That's what we considered last time I was here, that, that we, by nature, are children of wrath. We are children. We are fallen sons of Adam. But God, in his love, has, has made us, he has adopted us, so that we, as adopted children, enjoy all the rights and privileges of being a natural-born son and daughter of God. Well, in this verse, in verse 7, Paul lists another blessing that has been given to us by God in the person of Christ, and that is the great blessing of redemption. Now, redemption is the most foundational blessing that we have been given in Christ. All of the other blessings that the Father has given to us in the Son, are they flow out of this one great blessing blessing of redemption. This is the foundational blessing from which all other blessings flow. And so what uh, I want to do this morning and what we'll be considering is we're going to consider five things about redemption from these five uh, from these really it's verses seven and eight. And so we're just going to kind of jump in and the first thing I want us to consider about redemption is the meaning of redemption. Redemption. So Paul says in verse 7, In him that is in Christ, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. In him we have redemption. What does this word redemption mean? Well, redemption means, well, redemption has two aspects to it. Redemption communicates the idea of deliverance, or release, or rescue. That's the first side. And then the second side of redemption is that this deliverance or release from slavery or bondage or, or this rescue is always secured by a, the payment of a ransom price. So redemption always communicates these two aspects of deliverance by payment. And that is, uh, that's what the word literally communicates. It is a deliverance by payment of a ransom. And so uh, one uh, lexicon puts it this way. It says that the word redemption itself means to release or set free with the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave. It means to free, to liberate, or to deliver. So, you think about in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, uh, th- this, this word redemption has its roots in the Old Testament, and in the book of Leviticus, you could secure the release of a slave by the payment of a ransom price, and this is, you find that in the book of Leviticus. There are some other examples of redemption in the Old Testament. You think of God redeeming Israel out of bondage in Egypt, right, and that was not a mere simple deliverance right when we think of redemption we generally think of just deliverance but this word redemption almost always has with it this idea that the the deliverance or the rescue is secured by a payment of a ransom price and so when Israel was redeemed out of Egypt there was a price that was paid to secure this redemption and that was the sacrifice of the Passover lambs. That was then, the blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and you have the Passover and it's right there after the Passover that they then exit um, Egypt. They exit bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. You see the same thing in the book of Ruth where you have uh, Boaz, right, is Ruth's kinsman, redeemer, right? And Boaz redeems Ruth but there is a payment that was made. Remember, Boaz had to purchase the field of Elimelech to secure redemption for Ruth. He redeemed her by purchasing this field. And so, redemption is deliverance by payment. So, if you were to think of an Old Testament story like uh, when Abraham rescues Lot, that's not the full picture of redemption because there was no price that was paid. For Abraham to rescue Lot from, you know Cheddar Cheddar Laomer, however you pronounce his name, um, there was he just went and he cleaned house. He didn't. There was no payment that was made to secure the release of Lot. Abraham just went and he took care of business and he overpowered, you know, those kings. And uh, so that was not a, a redemption. That was just deliverance. So redemption is deliverance by payment and what Paul is saying is that we have been delivered by Christ by a payment now so let's consider the second thing about redemption the the full picture is going to come together piece by piece just so you're not like why in the world is he not telling us the rest of the story so the second thing I want us to consider about redemption is our is our need for redemption or the necessity of redemption so we have to ask the question, deliverance by payment. Okay, what do we need to be delivered from? What, why is this deliverance necessary? What, what do we need to be rescued from? And that is found in verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's what we need deliverance from is our trespasses. We have trespassed God's law. What is a trespass? Well, the the word literally means a false step. And so you think, when you think of the word trespass, my mind always immediately goes to a no trespassing sign, right? Which means you don't, you are not permitted to be here. You are not allowed to go here. That's what, when you trespass, you're going where you do not belong. Well, this is what sin is, is it not? It's when we trespass God's law. It's when we do what God in his law tells us not to do. It's when we go where God in his law tells us not to go, when we say or when we think what God tells us in his law not to say or think. And that is a trespass. We are trespassing God's law, and that is what sin is, right? And so, uh, John, in 1 John chapter 3, he says that sin is lawlessness, right? And the Westminster Confession of Faith defines sin this way. It is any want of conformity unto or transgression of, of the law of God. And so you and I, we have all transgressed or trespassed God's law. We've all sinned. We've all done what God has told us not to do. And this is the reason why we need deliverance. That's why we need redemption. We have sinned, right? And I would say that the only reason that you would see this as being good news that there is a redeemer is if you know that you need redemption. Right? If you don't think you need a redeemer, you're not going to rejoice at the news of redemption. Right? And we live in a world where people, the majority of the people that we inhabit the earth with, don't see their need for a savior. Right? They just don't think they're. They, they'll say, Yeah, yep, yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, right? I, I listen to, um, you're familiar with Wretched Radio, Todd Friel. Todd, freakishly tall, Freel, right? And he has this Wretched Radio uh, program, and I only listen to one episode, but I listen to it every week. He, it's five days a week he puts out a new episode. I only listen to one a week, and that's his Wednesday, Witness Wednesday. I listen to it every week. And he goes on the campus of these different colleges and shares the gospel with students. And the constant refrain that you get from almost every person he talks to, and it's true in my witnessing experience as well, is you hear them say, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I'm just not that bad. I don't, yeah, we all sin and we all fail and we all transgress God's law. And what Todd Friel does and what we do as ambassadors for Christ is we actually try to help sinners, non-Christians, see that they are actually far worse than they realize. It's not the most pleasant experience, but that's what our job as Christians is, is to tell people, no, 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 you are that bad and you're worse than you realize. You have transgressed the law of God and you have not just sort of transgressed it, it characterizes everything that you think and say and do, right? And, and so, you know, I think the greatest tragedy in the world today is that most people look to their sin for freedom and fulfillment, not realizing that the very things that they're looking to for freedom are actually enslaving them. And they need deliverance. Just like you and I need deliverance from sin. We need redemption. But you won't seek redemption if you don't know that you... You won't seek a Redeemer if you don't know you need redemption. You won't seek a Savior if you don't know that you're a sinner. You think about Jesus and his uh, conversation with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. When he says to them um, that he's their disciple and, you know... He will set them free. He who abides in his word will be set free. And they basically, this is me paraphrasing, they say, what are you talking about? Slave, free? We're not slaves of anybody. And Jesus says, well, if you're a sin, if, if, if you sin, you're a slave of sin. You, you are in bondage. And this is what we as Christians tell the non-Christian is that we say, no, no, you are a slave. You need to be set free. You, you're you're a slave to sin, and sin is your taskmaster, and the wages that of sin, your master. The wages of sin is death, right? So, but when we say this to the non-Christian, they still resist, and they say, "But I, I still just don't think." i'm that bad i don't think i'm that bad and the answer to give to the non-christian is to say that's irrelevant it doesn't matter how bad you think you are and it doesn't really matter how bad i think you are or how bad your mom thinks you are or how bad the community thinks you are because i'm not your judge and your mom's not your judge and you're not your own judge your your judge is god and so what, what matters is what he thinks about you. That's what matters. Is You may think that his law is unrealistic and outdated and old-fashioned and nitpicky, but that is irrelevant. That is, he has made it clear that that is the standard by which he will judge you. And by that standard, you are not just sinful, you are exceedingly Sinful. Right. And so oftentimes the, the thought, though, is to say, well, you know, this whole thing about hell, the, the wages of sin is death, that, that, the, that the penalty for sin, for breaking God's law, is eternal conscious torment. That seems like overkill. Why, why does, doesn't that seem like the punishment outweighs the crime? And the answer is no, 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 it, it does not outweigh the crime. If you could see sin for what it is, you would agree with the penalty. The problem is, is like the Pharisees, we are blind to the nature of sin. Just like we're blind before you're a Christian, you are spiritually dead. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you, you, if, in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And one of the ways that you know that you've been born again is that your eyes have been opened and now you see sin for what it is. You see it for the first time for what it is that this sin, this thing that I've been looking to for freedom and satisfaction is actually, it's vile. It's a cancer. Sin is far worse than you realize. When you see it for what it is, you see it in the light of the the holiness of god and the purity of who he is it is vile you know i think of it like a like a person sitting in the in the dark they live in the dark and they have a pet and they're petting the pet and they snuggle the pet and someone turns the lights on and they look at their pet that they think is so snuggly and cute and it's a disease infested rat well that is shocking But it is shocking. That's what sin is. Sin is far more vile than what you realize. And I even speak to Christians. It's far more vile than what we realize. And only when we get to glory will we see sin for what it truly is. Because even now, everything that you do, every, uh, sin is the air that we breathe. Every interaction you have with anybody at church, at home, at work, in the world, is marked to one degree or another by sin. We are like fish who live in a toxic ocean. We, it's all we know. And because of that, we're desensitized to it. We don't see it for what it is. And on that day when we stand before God and we see him for who he truly is with unveiled face, will we for the first time see our sin for what it is? And I believe that we will that day say, why did I cling to these pet sins? Why did I not repent? Why did I not repent? This sin is far worse than I realized, even as Christians. So, hell seems like overkill. It's not overkill. The problem does not lie with God. God is not unjust. The problem lies with us. That we are corrupt at the very root of our being. And we do not see sin for the vile thing that it is. Now why, you know, you're saying, geez, Jimmy, this, this is actually, you know, this is supposed to be about redemption. <laughs> And here you are. This is heavy, right? Um, And it is. It it is heavy. Um, But in order, what is Paul's whole point here in these verses? It is worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6, pray to the praise of His glorious grace. In verse 12, to the praise of His glory. It's worship. Paul is not laying this, these truths out here. He's not telling us these truths of redemption so we can just kind of learn it and say, well, I know that now. No, he, he is telling us the truth of these things that our hearts might be filled to overflowing with wonder and awe at who this God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And the only way that you're going to be filled with wonder and awe is if you see what you've been saved from. Well, third, the third thing I want you to see about redemption is the means of redemption. Redemption is not merely deliverance. It's deliverance by payment. Well, what was the payment that was made to secure our deliverance, our release from Sin, from slavery to sin, from the condemnation of sin. Well, he tells us in verse 7 In him we have redemption through his blood. That's the payment. That's the payment that was made to secure our redemption. This redemption is through his blood. This is the price that was paid to secure our deliverance from sin and from the wrath of God that is due us because of our sin. Salvation and redemption are free. It's a free offer of grace, but it was not free for God. It cost him the life of his son. And that's what this blood Word blood refers to now, once again, not to dog on if you're not a Christian, not to dog on you, but non- you know non-Christians, I've talked to so many non-Christians, and they they say, you know, I, I tried that church thing. I can't tell you how many people have told me this. I've tried that church thing, and I went there, and you know it's kind of creepy because I go into the church, and they're always talking about blood, right? And it's kind of gory, and it's weird, and it's unsettling, it's disturbing. And the non-Christian is right to feel that way. It is unsettling. I mean, we sing songs. Think of some of the songs that we sing. (laughs) There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Flood of blood. Right. Wash all of their guilty stains. It sounds kind of bad. Right. It, it is unsettling. And the, the last thing that we as Christians should say to the non-Christian is... Well no 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 you you don't understand you know it's not it's not that gory, no, it is it is it is it should be unsettling because that's what our sins deserve that's what our sins deserve that is the nature of sin that's what it deserves and we we, we don't rejoice in the blood of Christ and we don't speak of the blood as the precious blood of Christ and that's how the Bible speaks of it. The precious blood of Christ. We don't have this fascination with blood because we're vile monsters. all right. And God doesn't have a fascination with blood because He's a vile monster. It's because He's just and holy and good. And His law is just and holy and and good and the reason why there is such an emphasis on blood is because that's the only payment that can take our sins away and it's not just blood because the blood of bulls and lambs and goats could not take away sin the only blood that can take your sin away is the the blood of the lamb of god the precious blood of the lamb of god And so it is unsettling because it tells us what we deserve. When you look on the cross and you see the spotless Lamb of God bleeding and dying for you, that's what you deserve. And you may say, well, that's overkill. And the Bible says, no, you're blind to exactly how sinful you are and how vile sin is right and this is why paul says listen th- this is this is something that needs to be pressed what does paul say in 1 corinthians chapter 1 he says that the cross is a stumbling block to the jews it's they're scandalized by it. Why is the cross a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, because of the blood. That's why the cross, you know, we, when we think of a crosses, we think of this pretty little ornament that we wear on a necklace or this pretty ornament that we put on the wall or on your desk at work or something. But the cross is an instrument of capital punishment. It is the Roman equivalent to the electric chair. It is an instrument for capital punishment. But but there is a difference between the, the, the mindset of... or uh, the goal of capital punishment in the first century in the Roman Empire and our modern day form of capital punishment. Because today we have instituted the electric chair. And what's the goal of the electric chair? It is to make the death as quick and as painless as possible. Right? They say that you're brain dead even before you can feel a thing. So it's virtually painless. So long as they set it up correctly. Right? But, so the goal is to make it as humane as possible. But in the first century, crucifixion was the exact opposite. Their goal was to make it as inhumane, as barbaric, and to keep you on the verge of death for as absolutely as long as they could to maximize humiliation, to maximize shame. They did it in the public square. And to maximize pain. And so the goal was to disfigure the body, to mutilate the body. And so... In the ancient world, you would not even mention the word cross in civilized company and polite society because it was such an offense. And the Jews looked and they heard of the, a Messiah who dies uh, the cursed death of a cross. And they were scandalized by it because it is so Unbelievably horrendous. Because that's what we deserve. That's what sin deserves. So when Paul preached the Christ crucified, he was saying to these non Christians in his day, he was saying to them, Jews, Gentiles, what Jesus took on that cursed tree is what you deserve because of your sin. And so when we look at Christ on the cross, we are, yes, we are seeing the infinite grace of God, but we are also seeing the true nature of sin and what our sins deserve. There on the cross, you see the justice of God being fulfilled and the grace of God by fulfilling it in the person of his Son. Listen to this hymn by uh, Thomas Kelly. One of my favorite hymns. He says, Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long expected prophet. David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave now listen to this next part very carefully ye who think of sin but lightly nor suppose the evil great so you don't think sin's that big of a deal in other words here at the cross may view its nature rightly here its guilt may estimate Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. Here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge of the lost. Christ the rock of our salvation, his the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded, who on him their hope have built. It's the gospel. Redemption. He bore your sins on Calvary. And the question for you is, and the the choice that lays before you is you can either receive the sacrifice of Christ when he bore your sin on the cross and made full payment for your sin by his blood, or you can choose to receive the payment in your own flesh in hell under the wrath of God. And that's the great free offer of the gospel is that this redemption can be yours if you repent upon the lord or repent of your sins and believe upon the lord jesus christ that his death that purchases deliverance from sin can be yours if you repent of your sin and believe on him so the lord says in hebrews 9 that there without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin and the reason why the blood of christ is emphasized is because as the lord says in in the old testament that the life is in the blood right and this is why you know when we speak about bloodshed that means that you've taken the life of somebody you've killed them and so uh you know I, i've been reading and uh in my, own, in my devotions in Leviticus, and there's just so much blood, sprinkling of blood here, pouring out blood at the face of the altar. And the, the whole significance there is that blood, spilled blood means that a, a death has happened. Life has been taken. And that's why we speak of the blood of Christ as the precious blood of Christ. Listen to what Peter says. He says, you were re- ransomed, literally redeemed, from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And this is the price that was paid to secure your redemption. Well, four. The fourth thing I want us to see about redemption is the result of Redemption. What is the result of redemption? We see it in our passage, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is the result. Forgiveness is the, re- is the result of this deliverance that was purchased by the blood of Christ. Forgiveness meaning divine pardon. Now, one of, one of the things I think is so helpful is to contrast forgiveness. Uh, the, so, there's Christianity. Think of Christianity and Islam. What's the difference between forgiveness and, and Christianity and Islam? In Islam, they believe that Jesus was a prophet. They believe that he was a mighty prophet. He did all these miracles. They believe he was born of a virgin. But they do not believe that he died on the cross. So on what basis does the small g, God of Islam, forgive? He does forgive. They they teach that their God forgives their sin. But on what basis does he forgive? He forgives merely as an act of divine fiat he just decides i'm not going to take your sins into account the end (laughs) he just decides he just says i'm going to overlook these sins that is on the basis of what does the god of islam forgive he just decides not to take your sins into account in islam there is no redemption Because there's no price paid to secure the redemption. The sins are not paid for. And it's in this sense that the God of Islam is not a just God. Because he forgives at the expense of his just demands. The soul that sins must surely die. That's what the Old Testament says. And in Islam, your sins are not paid for. God just sweeps them under the rug. There's no redemption in Islam. Christianity, on the other hand, and this is the glory of Christianity of, of Christ, is that our sins are forgiven on the basis of the fact that that they have been paid for. This is why He can cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. There's no penalty left for you to pay. Redemption has been accomplished. Right When Jesus was on the cross, He said, It is finished. Meaning, that the debt has been fully paid. Or as uh, Paul Washer one time said, he said that when Jesus was on the cross, he took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it down to the dregs. And when he finished, he tipped it over and not one drop was left for you. He paid your penalty in full. And it's on that basis... And on that basis alone, that you and me, we are forgiven our trespasses. And so, this redemption, this forgiveness of sins is on the basis of the fact that that He purchased your salvation. He didn't just decide to overlook your sins. No, no. He dealt with your sins. There's no wrath left for you to take there is no wrath God's wrath has been expended on Christ which means that you're free and these sins can never come back to haunt you God can never change his mind because he's paid the penalty you're free Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Not with perishable things like gold and silver. Right? Those are tawdry things. We look at gold and silver and we, these are precious metals. It's so valuable. Well, he says in 1 Peter, you haven't been purchased merely or redeemed with, the, with things like gold and silver. <laughs> No, you've been been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. You've been bought and paid for. You've been redeemed. Martin Luther says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Well, the last thing about redemption is I want you to see the extravagance of grace and redemption. Remember, the whole point of this is worship. And Paul uses. The language of worship in our passage. Notice the word in verse, seven, in, in verse 7, riches, and in verse 8, lavished. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and understanding, Paul is not writing here like some sort of an, you know, a disconnected ivory tower, you know, erudite, cold, mechanical theologian. No, no, he's saying he, these are these are words of of worship. He's according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon you. He isn't merely giving you grace; he's lavished this grace upon you. He's using superlative upon superlative to explain the the, the superabundance of God's grace given to you in Christ. And you consider what we've been saved from, and we consider the great cost that was paid to secure our redemption, and what is our response? How do you begin to explain it? It leads us to worship. We can't merely speak about the grace of God as something that's given to us. We speak of the grace of God as something that's been lavished upon us. You know, imagine if you were to come to me and say, Jimmy, I'm famished. I haven't eaten anything in three days. And I'm starving and I need food and I were to go into my house and I were to grab a, a can of bumblebee tuna and I were to hand it to you and I were to say, here you go. And you say, um, thank you. Uh, but uh, I don't want to be rude. I'm thankful. I really am. But uh, do, you, do you have any bread or mayonnaise or cheese or uh, anything else? And I say, listen, man. You're hungry. This will meet your need. This is all you need. I'm going to give you what you need and nothing more. Right? Just meet your need. You're, you're all set. Just eat the tuna. Right? That's not how God dispenses his grace with us. Super abundant grace he lavishes it upon us he doesn't just give us the bare minimum of what we need to squeak us through the door of heaven he the the riches of his grace he does all this according to the riches of his grace that he lavishes upon us the the word lavishes can uh it it communicates the idea that there is more than enough that it's super abundant Super abundant grace. It's extravagant grace. Right. You know, when I was growing up, uh, my good friend Mike, I would always go over to his house um, over the weekend, and I would stay the night, and his mom would always make fresh rolls, and they were soft and steamy, and she would make uh, homemade rolls and homemade honey butter. And honey butter, by the way, is what, the, is what glory will be filled with. Milk and honey. Butter is milk, right? Churned, I guess. And um, I love honey butter, especially her honey butter. And I would put as much honey butter on the roll as was socially acceptable, right? Because <laughs> there comes a point where you're like, okay, The, the, the goal is, uh, you know, I want as much as I can get. And this is how God has given his grace to us, right? It's, it's super abundant. He's lavished it upon us in the person of, of his son. Yeah, it's, it's the gospel. There is, uh, Paul, remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy? He talks about how he was a blasphemer. He was an aggressor. He was an insolent man. And then he says, but the grace of God was more than abundant. It was more than abundant to cover his sins. It didn't just meet the basic need. Whereas, sorry to quote Paul Washer twice, but Paul Washer said, he says, God does not dispense his grace with an eyedropper. He is super abundant in how he pours out his grace. So you want to worship. You want to have a a heart that is filled with wonder and awe, that is filled with a sense of love for Christ. Why is it that your heart is cold? Why is it that when you hear the gospel, it's just... You've gotten used to it. Two things. Consider the vile nature of your sin. Do not listen to the liars of our modern day megachurch pulpits who tell you to not think of your sin. The gospel does not tell you that your sin is not a big deal. It just tells you it's been paid for. It is a big deal. In order to have a heart full of worship, you must see the vile nature of sin and the infinite worth of Christ. And as you meditate on these two things, your heart will be filled to overflowing at who you were and at the great cost, the great price that was paid to secure your redemption well, I hope that your heart this morning is filled with wonder at who this God is, at the riches of his grace that he's given to us in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that we are free. We're free, Father, from our sin. We thank you that there's more grace in you than than there is sin in us. And Lord, that you have not merely met our need, but that you have given us more grace than we need. You have an, a super abundant supply. We thank you, Father, that you have been so kind and so good. Lord, we thank you that our sins have been paid for that you do not merely forgive us just because you decide to forgive us, but that you forgive us because you sent your Son to pay our debt so that our sins are no more. Oh, Father, help us to come boldly before you, knowing the great freedom that we have. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.